It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 164, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Tom Kumpf raises about four acres of vegetables at Double T Farm in Garner, North Carolina, just south of Raleigh. Double T Farm markets through a CSA, restaurant, and a small neighborhood farmer's market. Farming full-time since 2008 and part-time for many years before that, Tom and his wife, Teresa Ryan, have seen their share of transitions from farmland transitions and suburban encroachment to changes in the local food and CSA marketplaces. Tom shares the story of how they've responded to these changes and how rolling with the punches led him to think hard about how to right-size his farm and also think hard about his approach to his farm production systems. And along the way, Tom digs in how he got his first lessons in organic farming from PBS, the parallels between farming and teaching, and some thoughts on evaluating success on the farm. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com The podcast is also supported by you, the community of Farmer to Farmer podcast listeners. By setting up a small monthly donation at farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate, you can be a vital part of reaching and growing the Farmer to Farmer podcast community. Tom Kumpf, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Hey, Chris. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Glad you could join us today. We've had a lot of trouble getting this one scheduled on, on my account. I really appreciate all your flexibility with making that work. I'd like to start off today by having you tell us about Double T Farm. Where are you guys located? How much are you growing? What are you growing? And how are you guys getting that to market? We live about 15 miles due south of Raleigh, North Carolina. And currently we farm on a property. We lease land about 10 acres. That's about um, actually about a half an hour away from my house. It's about 20, about 22 miles basically due west of us. And the reason we're leasing that is that we had leased land closer to us. We had leased the property directly next door to us for a number of years and then another property down the road. And uh, we lost the lease on both of those. First property we started on was about two acres of usable ground on a four acre uh, parcel. It was family friends next door to us. And the family member that owned it at the time lost it in the, in the real estate market crash in 08. And so we, we shifted and kind of moved most of our growing space down to the other property. And then that lease ended in 2015. And I, I had about a, a year's lead time as to when that lease was going to end. So at the time I put an ad out in the North Carolina department of ag as a classified section. And as it turned out, the person that found me lives, like I said, 20, 22 miles away, but that landlord has turned out to be a, a good trade-off, even though we have to drive I have to commute every day. This person is much more aligned with what we're doing, what we're trying to accomplish. And the, the big challenge with us is where we live is that we're in an area that has a, a ton of development pressure. And right now the values of the property around us are anywhere from 30 to $50,000 an acre. So leasing land is, is a challenge to say the least. They're developing the property directly across from my house currently. And there's going to be, I think, something like 500 units on it, I think. Yeah. That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> It is a lot of pressure. And it's funny because the property next door to me that was bought out of foreclosure, the person that bought it has now since left. And the only, it was about a 20, I think it was about a 28 acre total piece. And 
the uh, the frontage on it is the smallest part, but that's the four acre parcel and that adjoins next to our property. But that's the only thing that's left. He sold off the rest of the property in two chunks. And now this one next door is remaining, but he wants something like 200 and 200,000 for it. I think they probably won't sell for that. I can almost guarantee it, but uh, you know, who knows? Maybe we'll end up on it again someday, but I doubt it. Yeah. But $200,000 can, uh, that can make a 30 minute drive look pretty okay. Oh yeah. Without a doubt. So on that 10 acres that you're, that you're leasing then 30 minutes away from where you're living, you guys are raising primarily vegetables, right? Yes, that's correct. We've always raised vegetables. We we've done some strawberries in the past. We grow melons. Sometime I forget, maybe three or four years into our CSA, we had a lot of people asking about they wanted chickens and eggs and all that. And we we never made the dive into animals um, for a number of reasons. You know, the, just the complexity of it, in my opinion, the management hassles of it, and then the the margins I was hearing from people that were raising chickens and animals and the margins to me just never made any real sense. I thought it was too, too risky. So I just, I didn't, I never bothered with it. Um, so that's basically, you know, why we've never dipped our toe in that, that arena. I just never, it doesn't interest me. Not interesting you as a good reason not to get into it. And then you're selling most of your produce through a CSA or is it all of your produce going through a CSA? Most of it is we have, um, we do a little neighborhood market in the city on Saturday morning. I've sold at different markets over the years in different parts of the city. And we've had CSA pickups at different places. And the one market I got my start in, in the town of Cary, just, um, just west of the city, it's a, it's a big suburb, but the, the market I started there, I said that market initially and the powers that be at that market, when they found out I was doing CSA shares, I think the second year in or third year in, they were very hostile toward me. They did not want me having pickups there. And these are old, old time farmers. They thought that, uh, I took away from the market. I was going to capture all their customers and take away all the, you know, all their people because I offered it. And they, they had, they tried all sorts of silly tricks and, and things to, to, to cause, you know, just to make issues, make, take issue with it. And, Eventually, we just decided to pull out of that market. It wasn't worth it. The management of the market was terrible, in my opinion. So, and at the time in 2005, when we were we started our CSA, it was a it was an up and coming thing, and the seemed like the the more successful small farms that were out there, um, in addition to a good market, they were also doing CSA as well. So it seemed like they dovetailed well together in the right situation. So for us it made sense to kind of put the word out there that we were going to do it. And it took off pretty well to the point where we had a decision to make after about three years in, we're like, you know, can this replace my teaching salary? And we started having kids at the same time as well. So all these things kind of converge and then I'll go more into that a little bit, but we had our first, our oldest son was born in 2005 when both my wife and I were working. And then we had started the CSA that year is to have a nice target to decide, you know, we'll go for market and we'll sell, uh, you know, we'll have our CSA shares. And we had eight shares that first year. And then we had 2006, we had 16. We just happened to double at our two little pickup sites that we're at. We just doubled naturally from word of mouth. And then in 2007, we had a person, person approach us from the city, you know, a neighborhood in the city of Raleigh and said, hey, we'd love to have a, like a CSA kind of pickup site in our neighborhood and invited three or four farmers in 
I was one of them and we went from 16 shares that year. We went to 72 shares almost overnight. I think we had 30, uh, 36 of those 72 were just at that city pickup site. And then our other two pickup sites we had, we had some growth there as well. So the interesting thing was the first week we had pickups, I think it was first week of May that year in 2007, we had a ultrasound scheduled. <laughs> My wife was pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> And so we go, we go into the appointment and we're sitting there and the woman's kind of, my wife's sitting there laying down there on the table and the woman's trying to run the ultrasound thing over her belly. And I just happen to look up for just a, a split second. She's moving the thing around. All of a sudden I see two circles show up on the screen and I look down real quick. I'm like, oh my God, did I just see two, two circles? And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> and about 30 seconds later, she's like, uh oh, we've got twins. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> <In the snow. laughs> we walked out of there just kind of like stunned. My wife's a little older than I am. And so at this point, 41. And, you know, our plan was we'd have two kids and that would be the end of it. She comes from a family of eight. So we just met, you know, we met later in life, so to speak. So the time for eight kids, which I don't think she wanted, was not going to be, but right. <laughs> that day. <laughs> that day, all of a sudden, we're starting to catch up real fast. And we're like, um, now what? So, you know, we, we, we had that, the CSA season kicks off and we start meeting all these people in our CSA. We had about that year or the next year, I forget which now, but I think it was the following year. I think we had about four or five people associated with our CSA that all had twins. Wow. Um, it was the weirdest club. Now, my father is one of two sets of back-to-back twins in his family. But that has no bearing on us at all. We're, you know, we're told by the doctors that means nothing. So I've taught twins over the years in my classroom. I had a colleague of mine. He had sons that were twins that were adopted that had come out and worked on the farm a little bit over the years. You know, we're looking at this season unfolding in 07. We're like, what the hell are we going to do here? Because she was due in November. And then twins are always classically, they almost always are born a month early. It's just almost without fail because they're just, they run out of room. You know, we're looking at this going, holy cow, we're going to have to pull this off somehow. And we did, we pulled it off that year. It was hotter than hell that year. It was like, it was, it was 2007 and 2010 were like the two hottest years almost on record here in this area. And we crushed 2007, which was brutally hot. It was we had a lot of days where it was 100 degrees and just, it was brutal. It was dry. So yeah, we were looking at this going, what the hell do we do here? So we had the kids in, in September or October. You know, I'm in survival mode trying to get the CSA finished out through by Thanksgiving and I'm teaching and we we sit down in, De- in December and we, we look at we look at each other and go, you know, we had, we had thought about that if, if I could farm full time, we would do it. Uh, we had no family in the area. Her leave time was going to end some somewhere in January or February, I think. January, maybe, from work. So we knew somebody that had a parcel of land on the road. We approached them and said, hey, we'd like to come and lease land from you. They had, hint, they had offered it up years ago. If you ever want to farm here, let me know. So we did that. And the person said, yeah, come on down here, farm. It was five, five miles down the road. So we're like, okay, let's do it. And I went into my boss and said, Hey, this is what I'm thinking about doing. What do you think? He's like, yeah, we, you know, 
I, I made a clean break at the end of the semester in January and, you know, we haven't looked back since 10 years ago and we rode that wave pretty good for the first two or three years. The CSA wave was really running high there for quite a bit. It seems like a pretty bold move to have twins rent new land and quit your job all at once. What gave you the confidence to do that? Well, we didn't only quit one job. We quit two jobs. Okay. So, okay. So you're doubling down on what I just said. I mean, I, you talk about that. I mean, I remember, I remember how big my willies were when I quit my job <laughs> uh, to, to start farming full time. I mean, what was it that made you think that you were actually going to pull that off? Well, it's, I guess a couple things. If it's not, it's not out of being cocky. I don't think that's, you know, the, the first, you know, the first thing that someone might think is like, ah, oh, this is just a, cocky brazen move maybe or 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 maybe not maybe i'm maybe i'm a little bit too harsh to to jump to that conclusion but i had a lot of confidence in what i what i could do and and i was lucky you know we i had a couple of years three four five years to kind of hone my skills every night i was out there after work you know i'd be grading papers or writing lesson plans i'd go out and work for an hour or two out outdoors we didn't have a huge family demand my wife was you know we had one child that's, you know, you can, you can have one kid and put that kid in your back pocket and do almost anything you want. It's, that's easy. So, I, you know, I was confident in what I was able to do because I, I felt I knew what the hell I was doing. I didn't, you know, I took a number of years to really learn to do what I was doing. And, you know, even then I, I still made mistakes and, and all that. And so to me, it was like, you can extrapolate out and go, well, I can grow a hundred heads of this or a hundred plants of this. Now I just need to grow 200 of them or, you just sharpen the pencil a little more and you sit down and do a little more planning and you go, okay, if it takes me half an hour to do this, it'll take me four hours to do that. If I, if I quadruple it or whatever, it's not, in some ways it's not unlike having to manage a classroom all day long with a hundred and some odd people that have different personalities, different personality traits. You know, you're your own boss as a teacher. Don't let anybody fool you if they say otherwise, because I'm sure without an exception, almost every teacher will tell you, you know, once I close that door, you know, I'm on my own and administrators like that. If you can handle running the show and doing a good job, you make the school run so much better for the people that have to, you know, deal with the upper level challenges that schools face. And so, you know, I taught in, I've taught in so many different schools over the years. You know, when I first got out of grad school, I student taught in the inner city with, you know, 90% minority students on up to wealthy suburbs with kids from all over the world that went to school there. So I had this pretty rich experience early on with my teaching career that exposed me to so many different challenges. It's like you, you have to rely on yourself every day to solve all sorts of problems or you're just not going to cut it there. And farming really, I think in a lot of ways is the same thing. You have to rely on yourself first and foremost. And with my education background, my undergrad in history and anthropology, like all the other, any degree you look at in college, you know, you have to hit the books and you have to do a lot of research, no matter what the field, it just varies in its intensity, I would think in some degrees or its application. But at the end of the day, you have to solve your own problems. And if you can't do that and you don't have a good skill set kind of surrounding that, then you're going to struggle no matter what you do in life, I think. And so... That to me, it wasn't, it was a little intimidating and scary, I think to some degree, but we looked at what daycare cost. Daycare was $2,500 to $3,000 a month. We're like, yeah, we're not going to pay that even if we're working. That made no sense 
to me and my wife. We were just like, yeah, this is ridiculous. And so she would have been working just to pay the daycare and to keep her benefits. She worked at Duke. So she was commuting 45 miles a day one way to her job, which she had a good job there, but it didn't make any sense financially. It's like, well, this is kind of dumb to have to spend three grand just to walk out the door every day. So we're like, well, it'll be easier to rely on ourselves, which, you know, for it's been a challenge the last five or six years a little bit, but we're still doing it. How did you get into farming in the first place? I mean, you were in a teaching career for quite a while before you started farming full time. And you, you talked about doing both of those at the same time. How did that get started? Well, I grew up in a small town outside of Buffalo, about 25 or 30 miles east of the city. There's a, I'd call it a second ring town. You know, there's the main suburbs around Buffalo and then there's the towns that ring that. And at the time, and still today, there's still a lot of, there's a lot of dairy farms in that general area. And so there was a lot of agriculture around there. And my family's history is in horticulture goes back into the 1930s. Um, My great grandfather, at some point, I don't know how he pulled this off, but in the 1930s, he bought brand new um, glass greenhouses. He bought two or three at the time during the depression. So late thirties, maybe 1938, I think. So they got into the, they had like a homestead and he, he some, for some reason, I just, I don't know. I have to ask my uncle actually, but uh, he knows, but he bought these glass greenhouses. And I remember playing in them as a kid in the 1970s and they were doing bedding plants. They were growing poinsettias back in the sixties. They were growing Easter lilies in there. And so they were shipping, you know, just locally, they weren't a huge operation by any means. And then in the 1960s, my father and his oldest brother, his oldest brother went on to work at Cornell for 40 years in their, in their greenhouse uh, operation. They, at one point somewhere, I think in the sixties, they were asked if they wanted to take over the family business and they both kind of declined. My uncle being the one that was, had a degree in horticulture. And so that, that kind of fell to the wayside. But from then on, my father, who was a blue collar guy and worked and we always had gardens. So as a grown up, as a kid, we had, we always had a garden um, in the 1970s. Crockett's victory garden was a kind of a popular show on PBS. Yeah. And I remember, you know, just working in a garden with dad, we go like, I was probably eight or nine and it was like maybe late August or so every year we'd have, we'd pick some watermelons out of, he'd grow sugar baby watermelons in the garden and we'd go for a bike ride and come home and eat melons. And I remember as a kid, I was eating fresh tomatoes out of the garden and cucumbers that he would grow. And, and so that, that always kind of stuck with me growing up. And then when I went off to college, um, you know, at some point we're like, you, know, you go buy your own food and you're like, God, some of this food is kind of crappy. The tomatoes aren't ripe. And, you know, this is also at the time when groceries were grocery stores were expanding their 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 offerings from around the globe in the eighties and into the nineties. So as you become an adult, you know, you're responsible for yourself. You start looking at it just kind of was like the one thing that always stuck in my mind was my dad would bring in some stuff from the freezer. He'd bring in some frozen corn or frozen beans from the garden out of the freezer. Then he'd leave them in my apartment for me and my brother to eat, you know, when when they were gone, of course. And uh, <laughs> you're like, man, this corn actually tastes really good. And these beans still taste good and they're frozen and they're not like the store-bought stuff. And, you know, eventually I took an interest in cooking food. My brother worked as a chef for a number of years. And so, 
your, I guess as your horizon begins to expand, you start to look at things and, and it took a few of those kind of moments where like, yeah, this food's not so good. I remember dad's tomatoes are always tasty. And one day I'm, I'm home from work in, in 1996, I'm sitting home. I was off that summer for a week or two from the concrete construction job I had. And I flipped the TV on and, and there's a show on called gardening naturally and I'm watching it. And there's this guy named Elliot Coleman on there and he's making compost. He's talking about how compost is so, you know, you make it for free and it's a great plant fertilizer and all these things. And, and I was like, yeah, I remember doing that with my father in his compost bins that he made that the victory garden taught him how to do. And so every day, Gardening Naturally was on twice a day at noon and three o'clock. I started watching them going, this is pretty interesting. It's a cool show. And we're talking about growing flowers and growing vegetables. And Elliot, as you know, is very organized and he's very detail oriented and he grows a fantastic garden. And I was like, huh, it's interesting. So I, I bought his book, The New Organic Grower. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I could do this in the summers. I could teach during the year, have a summer job that I choose to do. And I was surrounded by a lot of teachers that all had second jobs. And it was funny because this is in the mid nineties. These were teachers that worked at the border. They were uh, federal border patrol agents. It was appealing because it was a federal job, but at the same time, they worked all weekends. They worked nights. They pulled double shifts on the weekend. So there goes your weekend. If you're trying to have a life and then nine 11 hits. And of course that changed everything with the border. So and by that time, I had already moved to North Carolina in 1999. So, but the plan was kind of in motion. It was like, you know, I'm sitting there during the day, I'm, I'm, I'm substitute teaching in different districts and I'm sitting there going, you know, how would I do this? How would I do this summer job thing in, in such a you know cold climate? And so I'm thinking this through and I'm, I'm running my dad's garden now that next year in 1997, he, he's working a lot of overtime. And so I'm like, hey, I'll do the garden. And he's like, okay, I'll, uh, here, here's the money or the seeds. Here's some, you know, I told him I wanted some tools and he bought me those. And, um, I started growing all my transplants in my apartment. I had a seedling rack I built out of wood. I had fluorescent lights, and I just started following Elliot Coleman's basic, you know, how to grow a garden, uh, his, you know, kind of hands-on tutorial from his, his TV show, which I still recommend to this day as one of the best shows for gardening and really for farming. It's just a step-by-step how to do everything that he writes about in his books. Today's experience is a bit different, but you know, back in 1996 and 97, there was almost virtually no internet still. Yeah. It was such a different world to start farming in. I mean, you just couldn't look up 20 different options for doing things. No. And you had, and all you had was books. I remember at the time, People laugh about this, but at the time, um, there was the book of the month club for gardening. There was the, or not gardening. What was it? Gardening. There was a history book of the month club. There was all these different book clubs out there. And the, the company that did all that was centered in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, right off of route 15 in South central PA. And I, I drive through there a lot when I go home to see my family or my wife. And I kind of laugh because it's like, I used to, anticipate getting this this newspaper sized like catalog in the mail every so often with all the books in there. You're like, oh I'm gonna get all these you know, books for cheap because they're closeouts and it was kind of before <laughs> Barnes and Noble was a big thing. <laughs> oh, I had forgotten you know, about that, Tom. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah. And it, it's you know 
that's, it was books. You had books to learn from and the internet was like, you had to speak out the internet at school. You just couldn't watch video <laughs> on your, your crappy 386, you know, IBM laptop. It just didn't, didn't work. Um, and you had TV. And at the time, honestly, this is the other thing that's lacking today too, is you didn't have the internet then for gardening and farming stuff like you do now, but PBS, it, no, it, no joke. It, 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 at the time, at least in Buffalo, there was about three or four really good farming, gardening related programs that were on just on PBS that exposed me to a lot of things. Like there was a show called The New Garden with John Greeley. He's a pretty well-known like landscape architect kind of guy. I used to tape these shows. I still have them on videotape, believe it or not. But um, I, that's where I learned about guys like John Jevons. John Jevons was on that show. Um, you saw his biointensive stuff he was doing in Willits, California, you know, on PBS. Saw, saw Bill Mollison on that program for the first time. And then, you know, you, you'd see all these different gardeners around the country doing different things. The Victory Garden was still in reruns at the time with all the different shows they had. So there was a lot of good shows on, and that was our internet, basically, at the time, I think, really. And, you just, and then you started doing it, you know, learn by doing and making mistakes, really. So you started doing that up in Buffalo, then eventually moved down to, to North Carolina. How many years were you farming in North Carolina before you made that leap into being full-time? So I was doing a garden every year at my dad's. So in 97, 98, 99, I was doing a garden. And then in 99, kind of as the season was starting, I was taking these trips down to North Carolina because uh, a woman that I work with, she said, hey, look, North Carolina is exploding. They got a huge need for teachers. Uh, this woman's daughter lived here in Raleigh. So she's like, here, here's my daughter's contact information. You know, you can look her up. So I came down for job fairs in Charlotte and North Carolina and a couple other places. And it was a whole other world here because back home, teachers there were, they had been in the unions for a lot of years. The union is real strong in New York and they negotiated really good salaries back in the 19." early 1970s when teachers were still not paid very well. So there was no incentive for people that were in their early to mid fifties at the time to leave teaching in the late nineties when I was coming out of grad school. So you had this glut of experienced teachers in New York that had good pensions. They had really good pension plans. They were still young. They wanted to keep teaching. They were making good salaries. And so a lot of them said, Hey, you know what? There's opportunities elsewhere. You should go look, look for them. So, um, so I came to North Carolina in 99 and I was here for a couple of job fairs. And next thing you know, I had a bunch of offers and it was nice. So I moved here that June, end of June in 99, I moved down here and had a place to stay. And I think that fall, I did a little garden in my yard. I had a little patch. I grew some stuff for the fall and I had a couple of places. I lived at the first couple of years. I had a little garden in both places. And then in 2001, um, I see this thing called the, the Piedmont farm tour in, in the spring. And I'm like, huh, it's kind of interesting. So this friend of mine, she was from Chapel Hill and she said, Hey, I, I know this area. Let's go. We'll go on this tour. So I go on the tour and stopped at a couple farms, but the one farm that really kind of made me go, wait a minute, this like, this kind of like a showstopper like event was like, I, I walked on to Peregrine farm, Alex and, and Betsy hit who you've had Alex on your podcast. And I walk onto his place and I see sliding high tunnels and I'm looking around going, you know, there's like three acres of crops here. There's these tunnels. And I'm like, I read about this in Elliot Coleman's books. I'm like, wait a minute. And so right then and there, I'm like, wait a minute, this is actually, I've seen somebody doing what I've been reading about 
now for a number of years. And so that really, when that happened, that moment, I walked away from there going, okay, this can happen here. There's a lot of people moving down here. There's a, there's an educated population base here. It's a longer growing season to say the least. That's one thing. And so it really kind of motivated me to go, Hey, now's the time to try to find some property. That year I start talking to people that I know and I get, I find a, uh, an actual piece of property I can use right down the road from my house. So I start growing some stuff and make some, you know, <laughs> some pretty lame mistakes the first year I'm out. Um, because I didn't, I didn't understand the climate here. To me, it was just like almost like night and day compared to, to Buffalo. Buffalo is zone five. We're zone almost zone eight here. And so those first three, four years out of the gate, I you know, took some lumps, but the nice thing was I was growing and selling on, on Saturdays at a little farmer's market. So I had the time to kind of hone my skills without any real pressure other than just saying, well, I don't have as many tomatoes to take to market day as I had last week or something. That allowed me the freedom to you know, still teach, make a real income, play around with this, take it, you know, take it, take my learning to the next level every year as I progressed, I guess. Well, and I think having that sort of buffer is is huge. I think no matter what it is that you do there, whether it's working for somebody else on their farm for a number of years and having the opportunity to screw things up that way or managing somebody else's farm and having the opportunity to make some mistakes there or or starting your own operation and having another job so that your whole life isn't dependent on that crop of tomatoes. I have to look at what kind of a teacher I was in the classroom. And when you first start teaching, your biggest kind of overarching kind of thing in the back of your mind, this feeling is you have to have control of your classroom to be effective. And there's, there's a lot of ways to do that. There's a lot of ways to build that into your, you know, into your, your, let's call it your system, your classroom you know, system. And so there's a lot of parallels to farming here. And I think the biggest thing that some, some young teachers struggle with is they're unwilling, they're unwilling to seed control to the students. And one of my, one of my early teaching mentors here in North Carolina was a, a woman who was about, we were about the same age. She taught maybe a couple of years longer than I had, but she always used to say, you cannot teach them content until you teach them how to behave. So, and that sounds kind of like, I mean, it doesn't sound correctly, but you have to demonstrate the behaviors you want or your system that you want in your classroom before the kids can understand like, you know, what's expected of them and, and all that. And, th- and this is more true as you teach, you know, middle school than high school, so to speak. I've taught both. So, but the bottom line is when you're a good teacher creates a classroom environment with which the kids understand the expectations, they understand the system. And then I can pull back and walk away and then work on working with the students. And so without going into too much education jargon, I look at farming the same way is that, you know, there's a lot of people trying to tell beginning farmers. Now you have to do things this way. You have to do it this specific way. And if you do it this way, you're going to make all this money on a small piece of property. And that's the new trend. Now is you're going to make a hundred thousand dollars an acre and you're going to do all these great things. And I'm not a big fan of that. I, I get the value of the, the system that's being taught to these people, but its application is so variable across all different regions and all different growing conditions that I'm, I'm more of the type of person that when I was teaching is I focused on concepts 
in my classroom and, and teachers would get frustrated time and again when they would say, we went over this. We, we, we talked about this in class. They would talk about specific content that kids would forget on like a state test about the civil war or something. They're like, we, we went over this, we went over this. And I would say to them, these are 30 year veteran teachers. And I would say to them, I say, listen, but did they learn it? You know, that's the key. Did they learn the concept? Everybody was always hung up on this pace. We're covering these topics. We got to get them all done by this date, take a test, and then that's it. And then everybody complains that nobody remembers their U.S. history or nobody remembers this. And they're trying to jam all this stuff down their throat all the time, like jam, jam, jam. And only certain kids respond that way. And, and maybe it was because I never taught all the high-performing students. I always taught some high performers. I always taught the middle of the road kids. And I always had in high school when I was teaching here locally, I was always teaching a group of kids are always kind of a challenge because I could, I could work with them. I, I could deal with those kids and my administrators knew that. Um, and I was effective with it. That was the other thing is I could get these kids to learn because I wasn't trying to jam things down their throat. And I could, the, the question they always ask would be, they'd ask was, why do I need to know this? Um, I'm not going to college. Why do I need to know this? And then, you know, when you hear that enough times, you're like, yeah, why does he need to know this? And so validity really matters in, 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 in context. And there's a context and then the validity that, which comes with it. So it, with farming, from my perspective, my, the, what I was lucky to do was not have everybody, there wasn't all this like noise around, you have to do everything this way. This is how you earn all this money or do this a specific way. Um, Elliot Coleman was out there and he, you know, his, his methods have been around for over, you know, almost over 30 years now at this point, but for sure for 20 now, this intensive methodology he's been using now for the last 20 years. Um, but it allowed me on my own to not be kind of pigeonholed. I could look at different people and go, well, they're doing this, this way. I like that. That works in my context. And this guy over here is doing this, this way. I can cherry pick that. And I'm more of a fan of build your own system based on what you learn works. And I'm also, I'm, I'm more of a fan of don't farm for somebody farm for yourself first, have a job. Don't co don't quit at cold Turkey. It took me years to do that, to even quit. And even then it was, you know, people questioned it, you know, going back to your original question about, you know, quit your teaching job and your wife quit her job, you know, that was kind of, you know, risky. It is if you don't have the confidence of what you can do or your, your abilities in your, in your own self. Um, and I think you, the only way you can build up those, that confidence and that skill set is by doing, just doing things yourself, observe from a distance, you know, gather the information and then go apply it. And even then you're only halfway up the learning pyramid, you know, analysis, you still have, you know, synthesis and evaluation above that. If you look at Bloom's taxonomy, when you look at educational objectives, you know, knowledge is at the bottom, comprehension on up to uh, evaluation. So synthesis and evaluation. So if you look at when you're trying to learn something, you got to go through all these different steps to learn, you know, do I have the knowledge? Can I apply it? Did I do a good job? And at the very end, you evaluate and go, yeah, was I, was I a success? Yes or no. And I think, you know, when you're allowed to kind of go out on your own and do these things, you become a better self-critic 
I think you get more honest feedback. If you're, if you're at least honest with yourself, you're like, yeah, that sucked. Or, that was great. I really knocked that out of the park. And so that you develop this feedback loop, which I think builds your confidence, builds your skills, you know, on and on and on. I think that's the classic, really the, I think that's the one of the best definitions of learning is that you do go out there, you do screw up, you fail, maybe even catastrophically. I've had catastrophic failures, still live to tell the, you know, tell the story. You talk about evaluation as being kind of at the top of your learning pyramid there. How do you evaluate success at Double T Farm? I mean, are you a successful farming operation and, and how do you know or, or know that you're not? Well, there's a lot of ways, you know, it's, 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 you know, there's quantitative and then there's qualitative, right? There's two measures. Let's look at quantitative. Is your, is your product, do you grow a good product? You know, yes or no. You can look at each individual product. You can look at your whole system as a whole. Do I grow all my products? Well, um, that's one measure, you know, that's, it's pretty simple. If you're delivering to the customers and the customers keep coming back and they give you good feedback, you're probably doing a good job. Quantitatively, do you grow enough product? That right there, you know, that's kind of like, that's the, the thing you focus on in terms of how much money you make. Could I make more money currently than I do make? Yeah, absolutely. Do I need to make more, more money than I make now? course who who doesn't right who who doesn't need to make a little more money to make their life easier am i a successful farmer that varies that that my my definition of that has varied over the years when you have a 200 member csa and you can you can make it happen are you successful probably if you're delivering product on time and the product's good if you can sustain that level that's great our market here has changed quite a bit so that that's the thing that's kind of bothered me over the last five years is that in our market here, so to kind of go back a little bit, we, you know, we, my wife and I both quit our jobs. I start farming full-time because we had a good part-time gig built up. Our numbers in 08 were like 125 ESA customers. And then we jumped um, to 229 the next year. That year, we also added a winter season. We had 150 customers. And from 2010 on, the numbers dropped. Now, somebody's going to say in the podcast, well, you know, your numbers dropped, so you're not a good farmer. Well, no, not really, because what happened at the same time? So I looked at other farmers that I respected, I thought were fantastic farmers. Their numbers followed the same trajectory, peaked in 2009, 2010, and they've all gone down. Every one of them has gone down. There's been a few others that have basically maintained a level. Um, and they're more of the outliers, but they're not, there's nobody in this area that's doing, except for maybe one farm. And I don't even know their numbers anymore. I don't even know anybody that's associated with that farm, but there's nobody in the two to three to 400 CSA member range at all that I'm aware of in this whole area, not a single one. And at the time we were in the 200s, there was probably four or five of us, maybe, and none of them have ever have grown. The market here changed drastically after the 2008 real estate crash. I think this area here didn't really feel the effects till about 2010, from what you you know you gather from the news and what from what people say. But we had a lot of competition in this area, so you know the the buzz in, in the in the in the in the media was like, well, people still got to eat. You know, it's, it's the market. People are unemployed, but they still got to eat. So then you'd have these companies create a business where they'd be starting to buy and resell product, and they. 
they create a quote CSA and they're, they're just buying and reselling product. They're not growing any product. Some of them buy from local farms and that that's even changed. That's diminished quite a bit from some of those. There's one major company in the area that's left. They're called the produce box. Last I knew they were, they'd expanded all the way to Charlotte, which they still, they're still there. But at the time we've sold to them, we had sold to them some years ago, but at the time I was hearing in the peak summertime, they were at eight or nine to 10,000 members in the summer between the coast and the city of Wilmington, where they have a presence all the way to Charlotte. We had another company move in here in 2014 company called Relay Foods. They were a company out of Charlottesville, Virginia, 21 million in venture capital coming down here, bringing in produce from all over the East coast, trying to compete with produce box. They got bought out by, um, door-to-door organics, I think, bought them out in 2016. And in 2017, they found they went out of business themselves door-to-door. They've been around for 20 years, according to what they say. So our numbers dropped over the years. And so we'd pick up other customers, other, you know, restaurant customers or other, you know, kind of wholesale-ish type customers to fill the void a little bit. But as that, as that changed, I just, I, I scaled the business back. I didn't try to follow these resellers and try to supply them at the margins they wanted. So that was the, yes, that was the, the point was when the market changed, I decided I can follow the money into this wholesale market a little bit on certain crops, but other crops, it just doesn't make any sense. So over time, I just decided, you know, I decided, you know, our lease ended in 2015 at the, at the property that was real close to our house. That was a situation that had a lot of potential the stars were just fully misaligned with the whole situation there. And I don't really want to go into a lot of detail about it because it's not, it's really not worth the effort to even talk about it. It's a frustrating, it's a very frustrating chapter in our life. But since then I decided, you know, I'm just going to right size the business is the term everybody uses. And everybody talks about all these, all these numbers and all these things. And that's all in a vacuum. And the other thing that people forget and, and, uh, I haven't mentioned this yet, but you know, as this is all going on, our kids are getting older and my twins are 10. My oldest is 13. And three years ago, they weren't 10 and 13. They were seven and 10. And, you know, the twins had just started school. And in the summertime, you know, who's going to watch the kids during the day? We're not going to, we looked at the, we did the math, you know, we're looking at this and going, okay, it's going to cost us $400 a week in the summer to put them in some kind of summer camp thing. And so you're looking at this going, well, $400 a week is an employee, you know, right. I got to have an employee employee around and I got to pay another employee to watch my kids all day. It's like, <laughs> this is just like a treadmill. And so I learned over the years how to be efficient with myself and one other person. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just not going to follow that, all that noise. Just going to stick to what I can do and leave it at that. And if it's, you know, it's not a million thousand dollars a month, coming in the door, so be it, whatever, you know? So I right-sized the business and I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of glad I did that. It takes a lot of the pressure off when the hurricanes hit in the fall and stuff like that happens. You're a little more, a little more, you know, you can, you can be a little more flexible. You don't have to be scrambling. Not as locked in as you would be if you had 10 people depending on you for their wages. Yeah. And you know, my hat, my hat's off to these bigger growers. I mean, really it is, these bigger growers that are employing, you know, 10, 12 people, even, even three or four people. But I always look at it. And the first question that comes to mind is how much of that payroll just goes out the door. So Tom, I want to 
I want to talk more about this idea of right-sizing your farm. But first, I'm going to take a break, get a quick word from a couple more sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Tom Kump from Double T Farm in Clayton, North Carolina. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the perennial support of Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes. Vermont Compost potting soils are a really special product. I used Vermont Compost Fort V as a blocking mix and a potting soil for over 12 years on my farm. And we grew great transplants with it. I mean, really great transplants year after year after year. At a time in the organic movement when we're seeing more and more companies jumping on the bandwagon, Vermont Compost is a reminder of the art and the craft of making potting soil. They mix an incredible diversity of ingredients into the compost that forms the basis of their potting soil, incorporating many kinds of manures along with plant materials and food waste to foster structure and aeration in the compost. One thing I have always appreciated about Vermont Compost Company is their ability to put out a consistent product year after year. And in something that's subject to as many variables as market farming, it's nice to have something you can count on. VermontCompost.com The Farmer to Farmer podcast is also brought to you by you, the listeners to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And the nice thing about that is I don't need to go on and on about it because the fact that you're here probably means you already think that the Farmer to Farmer podcast is kind of cool. If you value the show, please consider heading over to FarmerToFarmerPodcast.com slash donate to have a look at our options for directly supporting the show. Your direct support helps make this show available to a wide community of farmers, farm workers, and farmers-to-be across the country and across the globe. I would especially encourage you to check out the option to support the Farmer to Farmer podcast through Patreon, which provides a way to make a monthly contribution to the show. $5 a month comes out to just over a buck a show and makes a huge difference in keeping the tractor running here. That's farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. And thank you. All right, and we're back with Tom Kump from Double T Farm in Clayton, North Carolina. So, Tom, on this subject of right-sizing, because I think this is such an interesting question, and it, and, I, and it's one that has a lot of different answers. I suppose, like you said in the first half of the show, I mean, there's probably not one right answer for everybody. But for you, it's really interesting to me that at this time that you're talking about right-sizing the farm, you were also moving off of this two acre piece of property to a, a much larger piece of land, but you're all, you're also talking about shrinking the number of employees that you had and, and, and during a time when the, the market seems to be contracting. Can you talk a little bit about how that process went and, and why? Yeah. So we have our kids, the, the twins are you know born in 2007. We, go on to lease a second parcel down the road on a, uh, on a farm that the, the total size of the farm was 360 acres, give or take. Um, only about 60, 60 acres of that was actually open. And so the, the majority of the open land was farmed by a neighbor who he leased it and grew tobacco and soybeans and, and whatnot on it. So for me being a, you know, a first generation farmer, the struggle was even with, as the CSA numbers went up, you have to look at, you have to look at, you know, your biggest cost were always infrastructure and labor. And depending on the year, you just couldn't put too much into one and not enough into the other. And so as our CSA numbers went up, you start looking at, you start looking, okay, I have to mechanize more. I have to buy equipment. You know, what are people using out there? 
Uh, we're classically in an area that's not a big vegetable growing area. It's all tobacco and soy and cotton. Sweet potatoes are huge here. Tons of sweet potatoes. And so, and the climate really dictates that. So the climate's a challenge. That's the other factor that's really big to, I think, to consider is that obviously some climates are more challenging in some ways than in others. Our biggest challenge is high heat, high humidity, high pest pressure, and really low quality soils. So you look at these factors that you really, you really have to, you just can't change them overnight, if, if any of them at all. And so you, you look at other farms and in, in, in around just in other places and other areas, and you see their numbers are growing and they're getting bigger. And you read about CSA farms are in a 2000 range for membership, you know, 2000, 2500. And you look at what they have and what you have, and you're like, these two things don't dovetail. They just don't make sense. And so these pressures, these external pressures on the farm were what made me decide to do certain things. So you know, our CSA numbers went up. We were in the low to mid 200s. And as the market changed, I'm looking at things going, you know, I got to invest in the land that I'm growing. And I got to buy in, you know, compost to make things, you know, change, uh, to change the soil. You know, cover cropping works, but it only goes so far. Um, I've got to have labor. Labor is always a challenge or can be a challenge. Um, at the time, you heard a lot of talk in the, in the farming community around here that a lot of the Hispanic labor was leaving. They were, they were leaving. They were just going, there was no jobs around here that they were for one reason or another, other than in farming. So a lot of construction jobs are drying up. Um, the other factor that was important to me was that the landlord I leased land from had no interest in investing in the farm as I, I, as I painfully came to learn. Landowner, the landlord bought a few pieces of equipment that I found that were used to add to the farm. Um, but overall, I had no interest in managing the farm actively to grow it. The, the frustration I had was that you know, I, I'd hear from the landlord, well, I want the farm to make more money. And other than myself there, there was one other tenant there. It was a former employee. Their first generation farm, they don't have any assets or any, any you know, anywhere without really to do much. I had more, but it kind of fell on me to, to start, you know, dipping my toe in this wholesale market with these, you know, companies that were buying and reselling product and delivering it all over the area here. Um, we have a huge market here with potential, but the problem is it's all suburban sprawl. So you're looking at this and you're trying to figure out how do I conquer this, these, these situ this situation. And you can either fight all the factors or you, you can decide not to. Um, I'm not willing to work with a landlord that doesn't understand what I'm doing or what I'm trying to accomplish. And surely does not support my effort in, in making the farm a better place. So that's one strike right there. The second strike is just the soils are just, you know, they're a challenge. Um, every place I've farmed on so far has been a reclaimed tobacco farm super low, almost non-existent organic matter in the soil, maybe half a percent, sandy, sandy soil or clay or both. Um, water, you got to have irrigation, top-notch water to run anything. And if you don't, you're, you're really, you're done here. Um, you're just relegated to growing a handful of crops. And so, you know, you look at all these factors and you just, you fight them for a while. And you're like, you know what? I'm just, I'm getting close to middle age. 
I'm, I'm done with this. You know, unless I own it, I'm not going to bust my ass to do this. I'm not going to invest in somebody else's fairy tale farm, as I call it. Um, that this person thinks they own this wonderful place, and it's like you don't do anything to earn it. It's been given to you. You don't do a thing to you don't do a thing to earn it. I'm out here busting my ass, you know, year round, trying to earn you money. It's like, wait a minute here, that doesn't work that way. I'm done with that. Um, so I just I walked it back. I had people that worked for me. They were great people, re- reliable, and that's just not enough. Um, I just said, well, I, I can rely on myself, and my I can just I rely on myself more. I said, I'm just going to walk it back and figure this out in a different way. So then you moved your farm to the new location. Did your farm actually grow in size when you did that? Or did you guys shrink the physical acreage that you were farming? On the old you know, farm, the bigger one that we were leasing land on, we, we used about, there was one four acre parcel we used and we had another six acre parcel that we, I would grow cover crops on three to four of the six acres there. So at any given time, I was playing around with four to six acres of, of land growing different things in different stages. So we're always, you're always kind of phasing in and phasing out of stuff. So, you know, your, your, your less space hungry crops are always in the spring and fall, your lettuce and your spinach and all that. So you grow, you, you take up more room as you start planting more things into the summer, you know, more melons, more squash, whatever. Um, so it kind of shrinks and grows. So we're not just, it's not a static, it's, it's a lot more dynamic throughout the course of the year. So we still grow anywhere from, I'd say this point this year, we'll probably have about four acres planted by May, mid-May or so, give or take. I'm making a few changes this year in, in the marketing. So I'll grow more melons. I'll, I'm actually going to grow some more corn this year that I have grown in the past. we grow about the same amount of potatoes. We'll grow about a, about a good quarter acre of potatoes, probably quarter to a third acre of potatoes. The other influence on how I decided to grow things was Ann and Eric Nordell up in Pennsylvania, who you just had on recently. And I knew about them years ago, probably a good 10 years ago or more. I learned about them somewhere along the line. And I got their book and video that they published years ago. And I read about, you know, I liked their system. I had a friend from Pennsylvania that lives down, lived down here. And he, he had been on their farm years ago. And he and I discussed what they did. And I saw how they were, right-sizing, I mean, they have always had their business, I guess, right-sized to basically be them, rely on them, he and his wife, and then maybe one extra person. And so I started spreading out a little more. I stopped this intensive, you know, three, four, five rows per bed thinking that's prevalent and said, you know what? I need to manage the soil differently. I need to manage my water differently, my inputs that are critical, and my labor and my time. And that's all, that pressure all goes away when you spread out. So when you have the room to spread out, you can cultivate faster, you can plant faster, you can harvest quicker. Management becomes a one person job almost on a lot of your crops. So where I have someone come and help me transplant on my, I got an old horse drawn transplanter that I use. I picked up just on a lark years ago. We can go out and plant a half acre of melons in, two hours just sitting there on a planter. And from then on, it's all me. It's all me on the cultivating tractor. It's all me, you know, me and maybe one other person or now my kids are helping me. We're going out there and we're picking melons. And I think it's a lot easier. 
actually spread out, slow down, think a little more, um, think of what works and let nature do more of the work. That's the other thing is that these soils I've been inheriting on each property is they're all problematic. And the only thing that begins to fix them is the cover cropping. That's the only thing that fixes them. That's cheap, but it takes time. And you're either in a rush or you're not. And I'm just, I, I've learned, I just got slow down. It's an easier way. And so you mentioned using the, the wide row system from the Nordells. Are you also using their one year on one year off style cover cropping rotation? Somewhat. I mean, it's, uh, we're kind of lucky here. We live in the South where you can have, you know, cover crops on the soil 12 months of the year easily and have different, you know, you have just your, your summer and your winter covers. So you can do any number of things. I'll do, you know, coming up here in late April, I'll plant cow pea and sorghum Sudan grass and maybe something else in the mix for preceding some fall crops. So that I try to let that drive the rotation. And I learned this from Alex many years ago, following what he does. He does a lot of cover cropping at Peregrine. And that, that's really what drives his rotations. Either cold, cool weather crops or warm weather crops. You know, the, the warm weather crops are preceded by a cool weather cover crop mix of some kind. And then the, a lot of times the spring crops are preceded by a warm weather cover crop. We can plant sorghum, sorghum Sudan and cowpea as late as almost the end of, end of July and get a nice stand through the end of October. And then it can sit there and, and kind of get burned up in the winter cold. And then you can flail mow it, incorporate it, uh, you know, in a more car, a more carbonaceous cover crop residue into the soil for your spring crops. Then you don't have all these other issues. We'll have a lot of issues with seed corn maggot eating, you know, eating up transplants or tra- transplant roots. If you're, t- if you're, t- if you're plowing under a, a green, green manure, early in the season and that's that's always a problem so i mean again simple keep it simple you get you can build all that biomass in the summer heat with summer covers that that don't that just they can take all the abuse that the the climate can give them and they still can handle it and then that kind of drives it really um do i do fallows yeah i do fallows but that's the what that's the beauty of having a wider row system on certain things like you know, I'll do broccoli and, and cabbage and cauliflower in four foot rows, single row, four feet apart, because that's what my transplanter will do. And everybody thinks, oh my God, you're, you know, you're wasting all this real estate. Why are you doing this? Well, what they fail to realize is that down in the Southeast, at least we have Roundup resistant weeds here now. And so we have this one called Palmer Amaranth, which will put out half a million to a million seeds per plant when it goes to maturity. And so I, I cracked this farm open in 2015 and all of a sudden there's Palmer amaranth everywhere in certain patches. And the only way to deal with that and still grow a crop is what the Nordells talk about was when you have this wide row spacing, uh, you have all this, you know, it's it soils exposed, but it also flushes the weeds out fast. They come out, boom, and you can deal with them. It's, it's simple. It's easy. It's cheap. You're not hand hoeing anything within reason. And just to be, when you talk about concerns about Roundup resistance, that that's not because you're using Roundup on your farm. That's because of the farming practices of the folks that came before you. That's correct. Right. So that's, that's exactly. Yeah. So we're not, we're not using herbicides like that. We're, you know, we're, we use organic practices. We we're not certified and I, I never chose to certify for a myriad of reasons, but um, 
one of the reasons why I never chose is because there's always conventional something going on around me that might violate the buffers. That was always a concern that our old property, especially. But and again, the thing that I look at is farms are dynamic. So there's a continuum of this dynamic nature is there's this continuum. So if you start out with poor soil, you should plant less intensively because then as you build the soil, you can begin to plant more intensively over time if you take this long-term approach. And then in areas where, you know, you can still do intensive planting, um, that was that when that was the model that I adopted was that, you know, it's easier to water a smaller area with, with either drip or overhead or whatever. So maybe that's where I'll concentrate my compost. And that's, that's what I came upon years ago was when I looked at Elliot Coleman's work, his kind of classic rotation. I sat one, down one day and I'm looking at, it, I'm going, you know, he's only putting compost on four out of eight years on certain crops and it works perfectly. It dovetails every other year. This crop is either getting manure or compost. And I thought to myself, okay, let me break that down even further and look at it in terms of how much land certain crops use. That began to inform, you know, how much compost do I buy? Where do I apply it? What do I rely more on cover crops for? Where does my weed control need you know, to be tightened up? So then you start to look at this in a, in a more holistic fashion. You go, okay. It starts to then kind of reveal itself as to what needs to happen. And so then you can kind of then take a step back and go, okay. You target your resources here, there, or everywhere. So when you are bringing compost onto the farm, where are you sourcing that? Well, the the first source I ever used was the city of Raleigh. They have a yard waste facility. And it's probably some of the most consistent compost we can get in the area. Um, the last year on my old farm, I think for about an, over the course of about a year, I brought in probably 60, 80 yards in the calendar year. And I was using it, you know, on certain crops and certain places. And then I had a problem with another supplier, which I don't want to name the supplier, but we had a lot of problem with the fact they were using a lot of poultry litter and egg layer waste. And, and they had eggshell in there. I mean, you, you pull up this finished compost, you'd look at it and there'd be all these flecks of eggshell in there. And what that, what that did was if you used it at a high, if you used it at the rates that, you know, Elliot Coleman's using like these 58, 60 tons to the acre that these guys are talking about now, these smaller, these small growers. I did that one year. I brought in some compost and it was so bad. I didn't know it at the time, but it was so poor. It looked great. It was broken down. It was black. It was beautiful. My pH went through the roof. My pH went to eight, eight and a half probably. Cause after I tested it three years later, it was still at seven and the soil it was on was like five and a half. Um, at the time when I applied it and their, and their big thing was, you don't have to use lime. You got, you know, this will lime give you, you know, X amount of liming equivalent. And then there's a third supplier, a big, huge commercial company. And they do compost. They are certified by the U.S. Composting Council, but they're not organic certified. I have a friend that lives right next door to their facility, and they compost everything you can name. Sewage sludge, waste drywall, ground-up pallets. I mean, they're, they're, they're grinding up everything and, and composting it in these indoor air-injected piles. And their compost is cheap, and I'm tempted to try it, but I had too much of a problem with that the second supplier I mentioned years ago, it threw my pH way off. The biology was terrible. And that's where I began to learn more. Again, Elaine Ingham, she's been around forever and the soil food web folks. And, you know, I saw this compost. I'm looking at it going, this stuff is terrible. It's just something ain't right about it. It had no nutrient release. Um, 
I was using like five big wheelbarrow loads per hundred foot bed on onions. And the onions would just sit there. They wouldn't grow. There was no nitrogen in the compost, according to what they say in their analysis. You get their waste analysis and it says, oh yeah, it should have all this nitrogen. Well, a month later, the onions are just sitting there and you got to side dress them now all of a sudden with fertilizer. You know, you backtrack and you look at what Dr. Ingham says. And she says, a lot of these commercial compost facilities, they, their piles get up to 170 degrees and they go anaerobic and they off-gas all their nitrogen as ammonia and they're worthless at that point for, for fertilizer value. So you start having all these issues and you're like, wait a minute, you know, some places have great compost, I'm sure. The city of Raleigh, the big issue I had with them is that it was, uh, we'd have nut sedge coming in on their compost. It was growing on their piles in their facility. So, you know, we were importing, I don't know if it's purple or yellow nut sedge, but you use that and you have nut sedge coming up in your, in your beds. And you're like, well, this is not good. This is a bad perennial weed. Right. So again, you're always searching, you're always looking for solutions. And now the biggest one I'm really looking at now, I think this is definitely the future I think a huge part of what growers need to look at in the future are, are guys like uh, Gabe Brown up in, up in the Dakotas that's doing these 13, 14, 18, 20, 22 species cover crop mixes, doing it on you know 5,000 acres that they're doing this stuff and doing no-till. What interests me is what I've learned from seeing his talks is that you know these multi-species mixes are really, they're not depleting the soil soil moisture, like everybody says they are, they're actually enhancing it for all sorts of reasons. But your soil improvement's now going down three, four feet, and it's going down there, and it's getting there faster than having a two or three crop mix. And so now I'm thinking to myself, okay, how do you work that into your situation? How do you use that? So I think that's the way forward to grow a farm in our climate is now incorporate these, these mixes to really build soil. And it's always cheaper to buy in the seed than it is to buy in the compost. Yeah. And especially if you've got the space to do that. I mean, I think that is one of the challenges with the smaller, more intensive production model. It, it really is built on the idea that you've got access to high quality inputs that are going to perform the way you want them to perform when you put them on the ground. And if you, if you don't have that, I think that you really have to look at, at other ways of getting that job done. And that really does come down to growing your own fertility, I think. I have a lot of respect for the small, I'm, I'm a small grower. I'm not a big grower by any means at all. I'm just another person, you know, shouting into the void, you know, about, about all this, but it's, it's, uh, you know, I watch these, these, these guys like Kurt Stone and, and JM 48 and Crickmorn. There's no doubt these guys grow great looking product. They do, they got tight operations and they've got all these other layers of things going on around them, but that's not reality for 99% of the growers out there. Um, in terms of the resources they have access to, because I mean, they, and they've built this. It's not like it's just been thrown at them. I mean, they've had opportunities, they're taking advantage of it, and they do a great job. I have to give them credit. But the thing that I, the thing I always come back to is, how do you do it on your own? How do you do this without, you know, tons of research dollars, or or tons of you know, venture capital, or tons of gifts? I mean, we're not. We're not any exception. We've had people help us with things or invest in our business privately over the years. So we're not immune from, from help. You know, we're not against it. But to me, it's like the one drawback of that, this small, intensive urban idea, and this is coming from somebody who's watching a city grow, literally, by leaps and bounds in the last, you know, 19 years I've been here, 18 years, is that you can't outgrow 
you can't out farm 30 to 40 to 50,000 dollar an acre land values. You cannot do it because you can look at one of these guys and they have, you know, $100,000 an acre, 150 or whatever it is. And the bottom line is that's great and that's awesome and and let's not even we don't have to even discuss the labor costs involved to do it because that's a whole other issue. But it's like you can almost almost without a doubt it's so difficult to convince people to go, "Yeah, wait a minute." I'm going to let you do this for 30 years here doing this instead of selling this to a developer now. You know, you, you tell a 62 year old person that's looking at the back end of their life and say, yeah, just give me 30 years. I'll let, I'll, I'll make this, I'll make this a real, I'll make you more money, which you will, you'll make them more money probably might over time, but the developer is going to hand them a million dollar check and they're going to walk away with that and go, yep, I'm done. And you can't out farm that. So my, my feeling is learn to farm the big parcels, get the hell away from the city centers, let the city centers go up 50, 60 stories. That's the highest and best use in my opinion is build 60 story buildings. Because the more people you can jam into that city center, the more farms you can support on the ring, on the outer rings and keep them the hell, keep them away from the farmland. The problem is, the suburbs are sucking up all the farmland. Um, we're we're like a mile. We're going to be a mile away from the next outer loop that's going to go through here. There's already one belt line around Raleigh. The second one, the the, the southwestern loop is going to go right through our backyard here. Almost. Um, you can't. The farmers that are farming land in that area, they're they're stuck. They can't sell anymore. They can't sell their land. It's all going to go to eminent domain. My feeling is. If we look at this as a 40, 50, 60, 100 year proposition, when I'm dead and gone, it's like, are we going to leave this lesson behind for somebody to learn that I can go out 10 more miles, afford the land, and still farm 40 acres of it really well and do it ecologically speaking and you know, do it in a, in, a, in, a, in a manner that's profitable and improves the land and improves my, my neighborhood and all that, all that stuff. So Tom, I'm really interested because you you've got rented land, you know, you're you're leasing your property and you're talking about an extensive production model that is clearly to my mind relying on some tractors and 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 other implements. I'm curious what kind of infrastructure and machinery you're using on the 4 acres of vegetables that you're farming. Well, it started out pretty simple. I didn't have anything I started out in this two acre parcel, which is actually next. I actually moved and bought, I bought the house next door to this original parcel we were started farming on. Um, that neighbor had tractors. They had four wheel tractors that I could buy or I could rent or use. Um, so that wasn't an issue early on. So I bought a BCS walk behind tractor. That was my first purchase years and years ago. And really what I did with, what I did with that was I, I grew the, you know, a garden in the summer when I was off from teaching and I was mowing grass, I was mowing lawns. I have about five or six lawns a week. I'd mow and make some cash. And that was before we had kids. So when the CSA took off, I bought our big older uh, John Deere tractor from a neighbor, um, had the usual, you know, plow disc, I had a tiller that the farm, the, the bigger farm that I leased owned the tiller. So we would use that. Um, and then we still had the BCS. And so, We've always used the kind of the classic stuff, the BCS tiller and the flail mower for smaller. Um, I call it the small farm, big farm approach. Whereas you, if you're trying to 
build soil in a smaller area, apply your compost there, use your more intensive methods there with the BCS and your hand tools and whatnot. So we all, I've always had wheel hose and BCS, um, all the usual suspects from Johnny's, all the hand tools, the collinear hoe and all that stuff. When the CSA ramped up, I had looked at a lot of farms over the years. You know, I'd read growing for market going back into the 90s. And the, the one thing that was clear was there's always somebody had a cultivating tractor. So in, in 2009, I bought an Alice Chalmers G and bought the tooling for that. And, and slowly over time, I learned you know how to use it, how to best use it on crops. So that became one of my major cultivating tools. Another thing that really kind of changed my world was when I bought this old horse-drawn transplanter and I pulled it with the G, believe it or not. And it's just a little trailed implement that has two seats on it. And we started transplanting a lot of our brassica crops and our melon crops with it. And the only drawback is your rows can only go about as wide apart as the G and the G was set up for four foot row centers. So that's where we kind of took another turn and said, you know what? We'll hand transplant our lettuces and other stuff. But everything else, I kicked out all those other crops that could fend for themselves a little easier out into our bigger field that we were using at the time and transplant them with this horse-drawn planter. So I wasn't ready to buy a water wheel. That was the problem was every time I looked at a water wheel, it kind of kind of made sense and didn't make sense sometimes. And I penciled it out. So I was like, you know, let me keep figuring this out. So the horse-drawn planters solved a lot of questions for super cheap money. And then what are you doing for you know, walk-in coolers and, and greenhouses and things like that on land that you're leasing? Currently, my hoop houses are in mothballs. They're sitting here in my yard, actually. Um, I tore them down from the other farm, and I meant to move them. In the first year, we, we got onto that farm in the fall of 2015, the new farm, and we had 30-some-odd inches of rain in about four months' time. I just could not physically build hoop houses. It was, it was impossible. Uh, the ground was so mushy and just terrible. I, I just couldn't do it. So we got into 2016. The season got rolling. I didn't have a lot of extra help. So they just sat there. And I've, I've kind of struggled without them the last two seasons. This year, they're going to go up. We'll have the opportunity to get them up here as the season progresses. Um, as for a cooler, I've, believe it or not, I've actually operated without a cooler all these, all these years. And people look at me and they're like, you, you got to be kidding. <laughs> and... It's not ideal to say the least, but we're always kind of in that the short supply chain thing going on. I've got a basement. My house that I have has a basement. So we're harvesting early in the morning. Now that we're so much farther away, I've got a, a cap on my truck. So we'll harvest. I'll run this stuff back as quick as I can, put it in the basement, and it's good for that day. So we're harvesting a couple times a week, harvest early. I've got some old refrigerators that I use, but. Uh, you know, for things I want to harvest a day or two out that don't take up a lot of room, I'll put them in the fridge. But uh, a lot of it's on-time harvesting, and I just use the basement, and it it hasn't hurt me, believe it or not. And in the wintertime, it's even easier. I got a huge shop in my house. I got a 30 by 50 shop, and I just put everything in Rubbermaids, and they sit in the shop. It's 40 degrees in the shop all winter. And last year, and this is something we will be building out this year, but last year, last summer, I bought a huge stack of these uh, commercial freezer panels these commercial insulated type panels. And I've got enough of those to build about four eight by 12 coolers. So we'll have that done by the end of the year, finally, and get that up and running. Tom, it's going to change your life. Yeah, I know. Everybody's been telling me that every year that we tried to do it, it was like, oh yeah, this happens, this happens. That was our biggest struggle. I'll be honest with you. That was our biggest struggle was 
finding money to get that cooler built every year. And it just never, it never happened. It was always something, you know, we were paying our own health insurance for years and it was, you know, you pay for health insurance before ACA. I mean, ACA made our life better. I mean, we were paying anywhere from six to $800 a month in health insurance alone for about a year and a half. It was ridiculous amongst other costs too. So Tom, with that, I think it's time for us to turn to our lightning round. And first, we're going to give a quick word from one more sponsor. Hey, I want to just take a moment and talk about what I mean when I say that Vermont Compost Company is a perennial supporter of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. When I say that, I'm talking about how way back at episode 21, Vermont Compost Company made the decision to come on board as a sponsor of the podcast, and they've been here ever since. And they've made a commitment to be part of the show for some time into the future as well. Anybody who's had a CSA or a good relationship with the Produce Buyer knows just how important this kind of support is for a successful enterprise. So this is a shout out to Vermont Compost Company, making the Farmer to Farmer podcast possible since 2015. Thank you, friends. Tom, what is your favorite tool at Double T Farm? Uh, you know, there's all sorts of answers, right? My favorite tool... Can I give a two-part answer? You bet. Okay. It's not two answers, but two, a two-part answer. My favorite tool is the, obviously the brain, you know, the brain and the hand, you know, the connection there. That, that's one of my favorite tools. You can learn from that. The second thing is, I think your second part to that is history. You know, that horse-drawn transplant we bought, that thing is so simple and elegant. You almost don't even need modern equipment. I mean, it's just amazing how we did things back in the thirties and forties still at a pretty high level in some ways. When I got married, my uncle from Cornell, he, my wedding, pre, one of my wedding presents was he gave me the vegetable production book written by uh, Tompkins from Cornell. It was given to him. My uncle was given to him by the guy's grandson or son. Homer Thompson, Homer C. Thompson, whose vegetable crop book is like, you know, the reference for years and years and years. And this is like a 1950s edition, I think of it, or 40, late 40s. And I go back in there and read stuff. And it's really interesting to see how they did things without greenhouses and without all sorts of fancy equipment and budgets. They just made it happen with simple, uh, simple solutions. And what's your favorite crop to grow? Hard to say. I love, you know, I love melons in the summer. It's like, you know, it's instant Gatorade. You pick a melon, it's like drinking Gatorade. I love sugar snap peas, but God, the season here is so short for them. It's terrible. Three weeks and you're done with them. I was going to say, what do you have about 10 minutes in North Carolina where, where it's actually appropriate for that crop? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I see the first round of them out on the 27th of February and they're just they're germinating in the soil. They're just sitting there. I don't think they've even bumped ground yet. Even so cold the last two weeks, it's terrible here. And you're looking down you're going, okay, May is going to be 95 degrees and they're going to wilt in the field and they'll be shot. I don't know. I like growing a lot of crops. That's what keeps me in this. I don't know if I have a favorite. I just love that miracle of the seed becomes this thing that you hand somebody. That's always been the kind of attraction to me is that I take this little round seed and I pull a two pound head of broccoli out of it in so many days. You know, it's just like, that's how I, I, when I was teaching, I'd had kids out to the farm and I would, you know, I would teach little lessons. I'd embed these little lessons in the year when I knew these kids would come out, I'd invite families out with their kids to help pick things and do stuff. And, uh, it blows their mind. It blows my mind. So you, like I said, a little broccoli seed, next thing you know, you got a two and a half pound head of broccoli. 
And finally, Tom, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would you say? I guess my, I would say to myself was always, I would still say the same thing. Follow your intuition. Don't give up. Follow your intuition. I mean, those are the lessons you learn as a kid is, you know, don't give up. It still applies. Don't ever give up. Believe in yourself. Don't give up. And setbacks are only temporary. It's all they ever are. It's temporary. Tom, thank you so much for being part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Thanks, Chris. My privilege completely. All right. Wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 164 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. You can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Kumpf. That's K-U-M-P-F. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Osborne Quality Seeds, a dedicated partner for growers. Visit OsborneSeed.com for high-quality seed, industry-leading customer service, and fast order fulfillment. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farm to Farmer podcast right in your email inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes, leave us a review if you enjoy the show, or talk to us in the show notes, or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource you value. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com, and I will do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there, and keep the tractor running. (laughs) 